Hi. Women Leaders has grown into the age of sponsorship, and this episode is sponsored by the Heinrich Bell Stiftung European Union. This important German foundation is affiliated with the National Green Party and the European Alliance 90, the Greens. With a strong commitment to ecology, gender democracy, equal rights for minorities and empowering migrants, they advocate for a world that values equality. The Heinrich Bell Stiftung European Union represents the foundation in Brussels, actively shaping the future of the European project and its global role. For those interested in EU politics and policies, they're your go-to resource for information and engagement. And they are, of course, on Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. All links are attached to the short notes of this podcast. Many thanks to the Heinrich Bell Stiftung European Union for supporting our podcast, which helps us bring ever more inspiring conversations with women leaders. All opinions expressed in this podcast reflect the views of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Heinrich Bell Stiftung European Union. Welcome to Wise Brussels Voices and our series with women leaders. I'm Ilana Beitel. I'm a member of Wise Brussels, that's Women in International Security, and I'm your host for this conversation with women who are leading and shaping the world in many ways and fields. The unfolding crises in the Middle East and Ukraine have kept us very focused on global disorder. But to really understand the full perspective, it's necessary to look beyond these regions. In our last full episode, we discussed the state of play in Latin America, and now we're going to Africa. Home to 54 states and over 1.4 billion people, it holds just over 18% of the global population and is perceived as the rising continent. Moreover, it is where Russia, China, the EU and the US have great interests and are playing out part of their great power confrontations. We have with us two great women to discuss the importance of Africa and recent events within it. Dr. Comfort Iro, President and CEO of the International Crisis Group, and Dr. Nina Willen, Head of the Africa Program at the Egmont Institute. Welcome to you both. Comfort, it's extremely nice of you to join us on this podcast. Let's start as we always do. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career and how you got to the dizzying heights that you have? Thank you very much. And I, I appreciate um, joining you um, on the podcast. And uh, it's also just very interesting to understand um, the platform that you generated. That It's about women who are doing things as opposed to <laughs> always talking about, about women. So my name is Comfort Aero, um, the current president and CEO of Crisis Group. It will be two years, um, the 24th of December, 2023, um, when I became um, president. Um, I was before that the interim vice president, but primarily in Crisis Group, I was the Africa program director. I came back to Crisis Group. So I was at Crisis Group at the earlier years um, under Gareth Evans, the president uh, from 1999 to about 2008. And when I first came to Crisis Group, I was focused on West Africa. Um, sadly, watching the developments that are unfolding unfolding there. Then I left and went to the United Nations um, mission in Liberia. I was very intrigued. Um, I didn't want to get secondhand information. I spent a great deal of time analyzing and thinking through um, pathways to peace there. So I wanted to be there to watch it unfold. And then I left Liberia after nearly four years of watching that peace process unfold, I went to again to again focus more sort of discreetly on a particular issue that had been at the back of my mind for a long time and which we had focused on in crisis group, which is transitional justice and the idea of how do you um, deal with accountability, grievances, root causes of grievances, and how do you deal with justice um, in the midst of trying to um, do conflict resolution. I stayed there for a few years in Cape Town, running the, the Cape Town office for the International Centre for Transitional Justice. And there I was the deputy for the Africa programme. As I was thinking about my next journey, crisis group came knocking on the door and I came back and the rest is history. Um, my background is grounded in international relations, um, politics and government, having studied all my life in London. 
my origins are Nigerian. My parents found each other in London and then um, they birthed three children. <laughs> we were brought up in our earlier years um, in Nigeria, which I think was was vital for me to appreciate and my brothers to appreciate um, our parents' own story. And I think a lot of that and being surrounded with my parents, their siblings, and being in Nigeria just as it was ending its, just after it ended its civil war and was still dealing with the aftermaths of that. I think all of that informed where I am today. And just the final thing is that I grew up also at the end, sort of in the post-Cold War and also at the time of the Rwandan genocide and end of South African apartheid. And I think all of these issues sort of played into decisions that I made that, that sort of shaped the choices that I've made in terms of my of my sort of career, professional, vocational path as well. Thank you very much, Comfort. That was absolutely fascinating. And you raised many issues which I could spend a whole podcast talking about, not least uh, the politics of transitional justice. Uh, Nina, I'm sure mm-hmm. you do have a fascinating background. Can you tell us a bit about it, both your studies and your profession? Sure. So I'm now the um, director of the Africa program at the Egmont Institute of International Relations in Brussels, which is independent think tank, which is close to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but it's independent academically. And we're doing research um, on topics that are um, that we have expertise on. Um, we're also organizing seminars and conferences related to Africa. Uh, in different ways. So topics that have some sort of connection to to the African continent. And before that, I'm also or I'm also an associate professor in political science at Lund University in Sweden, um, where I also did my my master's degree uh, quite a few years back. And I've been uh, working on different types of peace and conflict studies ever since uh, the master's degree. So did a PhD in um, political science at the um, ULB, Université Libre de Bruxelles in, in Brussels, uh, focusing on the um, military interventions in civil wars in, in Africa, in Liberia and Burundi more particularly. And then I continue to do postdoctoral uh, research projects with uh, different universities. So Antwerp University with the Military Academy in Brussels, the Royal Military Academy, and also Stellenbosch University in, in, in South Africa. So my my research has always been focused in some ways on military interventions in Africa, mostly stabilizing intervention, what has been called stabilizing intervention. So peace operations, peacekeeping missions uh, or ways to stabilize the situation. So right now, my research is very much focused on security force assistance in the Sahel region in particular. Um, before that, it was in the Great Lakes region. So how um, external actors are trying to improve the capacities or capabilities of uh, security forces in Africa is very much part of my research. Um, and then I also look into the gender aspect of that. So how do we integrate women into the armed forces in different states, not just African states, but more globally? But I've been focusing on that in uh, South Africa, Burundi, and also in the Sahel region on, in Niger and Mali. Well, that's really, really, really impressive. And if nothing else, we could probably spend the next three hours with you two doing a deep dive into Liberia, where Aero Comfort, as you know, has um, spent four years in the UN mission. So you could probably have a lot to talk about, but we're not going to go specific, at least not initially. We will remind our listeners that talking about Africa is rather weird, given there are 54 states and it is a huge continent. Uh, But maybe that is a starting point for people who don't really know that and don't really understand Africa. Why does it seem that there are various parts of Africa that are always in trouble um, and are always in the news, that Africa is not a quiet, easy continent? Comfort. Um, Well, I mean, it's, you know, the the continent is made up of, of 54 countries and I mean when you look at it you know from its various regions not not everywhere is in crisis and not everywhere is going through some kind of turbulence and it's it's a pretty mixed um picture there are countries that are on a strong democratic path there are countries that are pseudo democracies 
Um, they have the the makings of all the trappings of democracy, but yet the leaders are varying in a different direction. And of course, you have got leaders who have tilted um, to a more stronger authoritarian bend. There are countries that are in transition from years, year long years of turbulence, and now trying to carve um, a more democratic path. And there are. Um, you know, the continent also has its major powers, superpowers. So classically, it used to be Nigeria, South Africa, still very much at the heart of that. But it used to be um, Egypt, uh, Libya. Um, but since Libya's sort of turmoil in 2011, um, it, is, it hasn't sort of been a, a sort of strong power in the same way. And you've got countries like Ethiopia and Algeria, still very much there. And then rising middle powers like Kenya and Rwanda, who are also trying to shape peace and security on the continent. Now, we are talking at a moment where there have been a number of coups um, on the on the continent. So we have seen in the very first two decades of this century, for example, we've seen 13 successful um, coups that have taken place. But Worryingly, astonishingly, for all of us who've been watching the continent from August 2020 right through to now, as I speak to you, 2023, there have been seven coups. Um, seven African leaders have been toppled um, by their own militaries. Um, and a lot of this, even more worryingly, <laughs> a lot of these military takeovers um, have been primarily sort of in this belt of instability that stretches from Niger to, to Sudan. And everybody's concern today is whether there's going to be any contagion as well. So I am um, contagion effect or any domino um, effect. And everybody's asking, everybody's spe- speculating where the next coup is going to be. What is worrying, and this will be my final words, what is worrying is that the coups are taking place particularly in three countries where there's been strong international investment. So Mali, um, Burkina Faso, and, and Niger, often described as the southern neighbourhood of, of Europe and where we've seen strong European intervention, primarily led by France. And then right across the other side, you've got um, Sudan, also where there's been significant um, international attention. But what is sad about the Sudan situation particularly is that 2019, you saw a number of youthful um, demonstrations, protests, women particularly at the helm of that, young people at the helm of that, to topple over 30 years of, of a sort of a dictatorship in the form of Omar al-Bashir. And to see that revolution being captured by the military um, is sad, painful, um, and depressing. But I think there's a strong resistance in Sudan. So the door is still open to reverse that, but it doesn't look very promising when you look at it from today. So I'll stop there. All, all of this to say is that the continent is going through a period of high stakes, ferment, and lots of worry, um, but it's also a very mixed picture um, as well. Thank you. Of course it is a mixed picture. Thank you, Eric. Uh, but Nina, as a, as a more military-minded uh, or expert, why is the military in all these states being empowered and why are they making these coups, do you think? Right. So it's it's very difficult to, to answer for, for each of the states, but I think it's important to remember that this is not the first coup wave that the African continent is witnessing. We, This Africa is the, the continent which has seen the most coups in the world, um, with 220 out of the 490 coup, coups and coup attempts that have taken place globally since 1950. 220 have taken place on the African continent, and 109 of these have been successful. So there is a history of coup, and that's, of course, uh, an important factor to why we see uh, coups today, because one of the reasons that it's identified by research, the civil military research that looking into coups is really the military centrality. That's one of the, the prime reasons to why there are coups in states globally. And in Africa, in particular, the military has a, a very central role in many states, one reason for this is the colonial legacy. So in many of the colonies, 
the colonizers built up a relatively strong military to be able to um, suppress the domestic uh, opposition to the colonization. And that military uh, stayed on as a very central actor after uh, the colonization period. And many of the leaders who came into power after colonization period, they maintained the military as a, as a strong institution because they wanted to stay in power. So they basically tried to buttress uh, the military by giving them specific privileges or putting them in place uh, in return for loyalty. So that meant that you had not very strong operational militaries, but you had militaries that were keen on keeping the regime in power. So let's say that the politics was militarized and the military was politicized. And I think that that has stayed on in, in many of, of the African states that we see today. And we also know that once a state has a history of coup, the risk that they will have more coups is, is even more bigger. So, for example, as, as Comfort was already mentioning, Sudan has seen 17 coup attempts. So it's not something that's happening right now. Burkina Faso has the highest figure of successful coups with nine coups, like 2023. So we're seeing these in states that already have a, a domestic history of coup, where the military already has a very central central role to play in, in, in the states. And of course, that's reinforced by common threats. So Comfort was talking about how external actors have been involved in many of the states that have experienced coup during the past few years, um, fighting different types of non-state uh, armed actors like jihadist groups. And once we have a common enemy uh, between these African states and the external actors, whether they are Western actors or uh, non-Western actors, that's, of course, also putting the militaries and the armed forces role even more prominent because it means that this is seen as a solution to the problems or the security crisis. And, and that even uh, that pushes the military to the front for uh, front even more. And so I think that that's uh, one of the reasons that we see the coups, the military's centrality in, in many of the African states. And why we're seeing them now is, is probably also related to a little bit what Comfort was alluding to, the great power competition that we now have um, since, especially since the invasion um, of Ukraine in 2022, really have a, a strong competition between uh, the Western state, however we define that, uh, and and the other uh, states, and and we can see that that competition is really weakening the anti-coup norms more globally. It means that the norms that we set uh, they are deprioritized for the interests. So if we have security interest in a, in a state, we're more likely to try to maintain that instead of uh, condemning coups, and that goes for not just Western actors, but but more globally. So I think these two aspects uh, are, are important to remember when we talk about coups. So military centrality, which is um, privileged both by uh, regime, um, the regimes in power already wants to maintain their, their uh, seat, but also by external actors who are promoting the military through different, um, through different means. And then in, in combination with that, we then have the the great power competition that's weakening many of the norms uh, that we're normally trying to uphold. Thank you both very much. And thank you, Nina. Just as an entire aside, which other continent has a high level of coups? Right. So um, Latin America had a very high level of coups during the 1970s, but that has gone down after the democratization wave in the 1990s. Uh, same goes for Africa. During the two decades before uh, 2020, we also saw um, a decline of the number of coups. I think we had 39 coup attempts between uh, 2000 and 2019. So there were fewer coup attempts, but they were more successful. And then from 2020 and onwards, we have more coup attempts and they're more successful. So if I'm calculating right, we have a success rate of about 64% uh, for coup uh, plotters uh, in Africa today during the past three years. So that, that gives you an indication of, of why it's the cost benefit analysis for coup plotters has really radically changed during the past few years. And just to finish on this, because I'm doing research on it right now, Comfort was mentioning the risk of the contagiousness of coups. So I think that it's important to say that each coup has its own rationale. Uh, 
there is always a domestic narrative behind each of the coups that we see. And they are not contagious in the sense that there is a domino falling. And there has been statistical research before on coups that are saying that there is no learning or emulation between coups. But that research was done before the latest coup wave. And what I'm trying to show in my research um, now is that there is actually learning and emulation between the coup leaders and the coup plotters, especially in the Sahel region. Um, you were talking before about how France has been oosted in many of these states. Um, and I think that between the three states, Mali, Burkina Faso and, and Niger, I think that we can see that certain aspects have been repeated and copied between the coup leaders uh, over the past three years, notably that they have been uh, cutting support and, and collaboration with France very early on um, to gain more domestic support and that they have tried to reach out to Russia in different uh, forms or different ways. And also looking at how they have been treating ECOWAS, the uh, West African Regional Organization, and how they've been dealing with, with uh, ECOWAS uh, condemnations and sanctions of the coups. I think that also shows that there has been some sort of learning between, between the coup leaders. Um, just to say, because I, the focus really from what Nina's been providing has been on the military takeover of a country. But there's also been an, another interesting phenomenon that's been taking side, place alongside of this. This is sort of unconstitutional change of term limits. Um, I think that and that doesn't require or result in a military takeover. It just requires the leader, the incumbent, the regime um, to tamper with the term limits of, a, of the constitution to extend power on the argument that the people want me, <laughs> the people want me to stay in power, um, or for reasons to explain that the stability of the country needs to remain under, under my supervision. So a number of countries fall into that bracket, I think Ivory Coast, although it's worth qualifying that today Ivory Coast um, looks even better and leaner within the context that we're seeing in, in South Africa. Um, but you are seeing what I would call electoral or what we would call electoral authoritarianism. Um, and there you can put Central African Republic, Equatorial Guinea, um, Zimbabwe, for example, all undered, all ended in a sort of a kind of regime where the presidents um, fix elections and change the constitution so they can they can serve beyond their mandated term limits. And Uganda, for example, is another good one. Um, Rwanda is another good one. So I think it's worth sort of qualifying what we mean by um, coups, <laughs> because some of them are coups in the classic military takeover, but there are some where the incumbent uses a democratic platform to get into power, but then tampers with that very process, the constitution, to extend their power, to maintain power, to hold on to onto power, and and we're seeing a lot more um, of that on the on the continent alongside the classic military military takeover. So I wanted to sort of inject that in in Nina's very good historical. I think that's an excellent point to to, to inject. Again, for those who don't understand much about Africa, uh, and even for those who do, I think we have here. It seems to me, just as a non-expert, you have issues of governance. Because why is the level of governance so bad for people and therefore it's easy to do these things? Yeah, I mean, again, I mean, Nina raised an, a number of important um, big issues um, that I think um, we should sort of unpack them one by one. Because in there, she rightfully said there are domestic um, context matters um, in all of the stories um, that, that we have seen. Um, and, you know, the most immediate one. So I think we don't have time to do a big sort of kaleidoscope of, of everything. But in each of the recent coups, for example, and let's narrow it down to the, to the three in the Sahel and then um, Sudan, because those are the ones that really are at the centre of everybody's concern. And each recent coup, for example, has a different, you know, story and it's driven by local problems. It's true there is the sort of international um, context, but I don't think we should lose sight of the very local problems that these countries 
um, are facing as well. Now, some have emerged as a response to government failures, for example, to control Islamist militancy. This is very much the story of Mali. And in fact, the interesting thing about Mali is that there had been an unconstitutional um, sort of attempt to usurp governance in that country by Ibrahim Boubacar Keita, who was the president on the eve of the coup. Now, out of frustration um, with his performance, both governance and in terms of the Islamist militancy, um, a coup, um, the, the, the military stepped in um, to usurp him from power. Now, Nina rightfully mentioned ECOWAS. The interesting, and this is the regional body for West Africa, the interesting thing about, about Mali is that when ECOWAS decided to intervene, and to protest the coup, the Malian people turned around and said, wait a minute, when there was a civilian attempt to, to usurp governance, i.e. to recognise or to delegitimize the vote in the legislative assembly, you did not step in then because we consider that a coup. But you step in when it's one of your own. And when it's one of your own um, heads of state, you step in to say that was a coup. So one could argue that the real coup in Mali had taken place long before the August 2020, because the president himself had undermined the legislative um, assembly at that time. But anyway, that's the Mali. That's the Mali story. But it's a fascinating story. And when you say that people rose up and said that, it just brings us slightly also to the issue of civil society. How does civil society function? And it's, it's, it's interesting that in all of these three countries, so the French fact, we can't ignore the, the, the failed French um, intervention in Mali. I think that's part of the, the, the struggle and that's part of the story behind the coup. But in all the three countries, civilians welcomed the coup. They welcomed the military, not because they are pro-military, not because they believe in the military um, regimes, but it was anger with civilian leaders it was anger with the failure of what they promised, what they said democracy would promise as well. So if you look, and it was also anger with the, I would say, the unchecked um, Islamist um, violence, particularly in Mali and Burkina Faso, because in those two countries, the military, for example, was very much at the, the heart of the Islamist um, pushback. And yet they were also being held to account. Um, for the failure of government to provide the capacity for the military to fight. But what was really interesting about in these three countries is that the civilians themselves um, had come up to, to show their own frustration with governance in their country. And they were beginning to see that democracy, although they are still faithfully committed to the idea of democracy, they saw that it wasn't delivering in terms of basic livelihoods, in terms of public services, in terms of ending corruption. And in all three countries, corruption is at the heart of the matter. But Niger is slightly different, and so is Guinea. Guinea and Gabon, for example, are interesting because they had nothing to do with Islamist militancy. That was not a factor. Um, but these were countries that had suffered under erratic dictators for decades, um, elected presidents moving to cling on to power um, when it was clear that they had to step down and when it was clear that the electoral outcome was not in their favour. And that pr prompted a military intervention. For example, in Gabon, that was blatantly rigged elections by a weakened longtime ruler, and that provided impotence for change. In fact, it was a family, it's a family coup in, in a sense. And then the one we haven't talked about um, is another interesting coup that happened in Chad in, in 2021 when military leaders there used the opportunity opened up by the death of the longtime ruler to then appoint the son of Debbie. Um, so Debbie, Debbie one was replaced by Debbie two, the son, um, who headed the military council. And then he reneged on this promise, provide a limited stay in power. And now he's in, he's in power. So each context is different. The civil society is there either as a counterweight or sort of rallying behind the military. But in rallying behind the military, we mustn't assume that they favour the military, but they see that right now the civilian leaders are not providing the answer that they need in terms of governance, instead in, in terms of livelihood issues as well. You know, when um, you're an expert on external military interventions, when you see an external military intervention being mounted, do you think there's any awareness at all of all these absolutely fascinating differences and the fact that the military 
is favoured, but only in relation to a more corrupt political leader? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that there is limited understanding from external actors about exactly the local context in many of these situations. Um, in some contexts, in some situations, there is more, of course, uh, depending on who the external actors are. I think I just wanted to jump in a little bit about what Comfort was saying earlier about uh, these unconstitutional changes of government and how there are quite a few leaders who are evading the term limits and are changing the constitution through some sort of imposed referendums and and the uh, Africa Center for Strategic Studies just did a research that's quite interesting that shows that many of the leaders who have evaded term limits, uh, like Comfort said, they have come to power through a military coup or through military support or through a civil conflict. So you can see that leaders who have gained powers through these uh, extra constitutional norms or means they tend to continue to violate uh, legal constraints on on their time in power. So they're both they're feeding into each other. Let's say the unconstitutional changes of government and the coups. So that means that we have quite a few leaders on the continent who are are keen to stay in power. And and as Comfort said, uh, already in Chad, uh, the transition period has become longer. And and we've seen that in many of the states that have experienced coup recently. They set out a transition period and that then that transition period is just extended and extended and the conditions are changed so that they can uh, ultimately be elected in, in, in to stay in power, power further on. And I was also thinking when, when Comfort was speaking about the popular support for, for the coups in, in the region. And I agree with comfort that there have been popular support in both Mali and Burkina Faso. In Mali, it was very much a, a popular demonstrations that preceded the coup in, in August 2020. So the first coup in Mali that took place then, um, because exactly because the corruption of the previous president, Ibeka. And in Burkina Faso, there was the whole jihadist element where the armed forces felt that they weren't protected enough by the political leadership or that there were quite a few um, casualties in, in the armed forces and the security forces that was really mounting it towards the pressure uh, against the political leadership that was seen as corrupt and not sufficiently engaged in protecting uh, its own armed forces. In Niger, I think, just as, as Comfort was pointing out, the situation was a bit different because there we had a president, President Basum, that came after almost a decade of, of, of a quite corrupt, I would say, regime or, or a government with the President Isufu. And Basum was then seen as the, as the new president trying to change uh, the, or, or let's say, try to, to, to get back to the corruption or try to handle the corruption in a different way. So there wasn't any popular demonstrations uh, against um, President Basum before the coup. Even though we could see that there was support in the capital after the coup took place, it was not at all to the same extent as in Burkina Faso or Mali. So I think um, that the context is very different in, in these cases, as Comfort pointed out. But of course, governance is at the heart of, of the problem in each of the states that we've seen coups in. Liana, you just you asked an interesting question about the ex external, and I think you know when when we began and Nina, you started to say something interesting about the international context. I think what we should bear in mind is the timing of when these coups happened. So we've sort of laid out the the land in terms of the local context, but these coups were also happening not just in a moment of high stakes geopolitical um, tensions um, internationally, not just happening at the time where um, Russia appeared to be taking advantage of sort of French troubles um, in the Sahel. It also, yes, there's Russia's sort of 2022 invasion of Ukraine, but on the eve of all of these things was also two important factors that I think Africa has also been caught up with. So there's the sort of the turmoil of recent global shocks um, around um, Ukraine and, and the fallout you know, around sanctions, um, around food insecurity, about energy prices. But this was also taking place at a time when the continent was coming out of another shock, i.e. COVID pandemic as well. And I don't think we should we should forget, forget that, that over the past few years, the economies 
had been battered by COVID-19 um, um, and that Africa itself had suffered as a result of that. So it was coming out of that shock. And at the same time as you know, recovering from that was having to deal um, with elevated food prices that many countries were trying to revive their economies. And then Ukraine um, happened as well. So a number of them had fallen into tremendous trouble. But also, I think the other thing that it's worth bearing in mind, you had the whole climate um, adaptation and financing and the monies that were promised not um, being delivered. And these are countries that are, that have got suffering now today um, from sort of a sovereign debt crisis, um, soaring inflation, and you know climate change-driven catastrophe. So when you add all of these together, um, plus the local context, and the pressures and the weakness of, of regimes not delivering on the promises around democracy, then you begin to understand um, that there are deeper roots into these crises and um, into these conflicts um, that explain why some countries, and I really want to underline, some countries are susceptible um, to coups because you know not every country that faces these crises um, lands into this kind of trouble. So in the same West Africa region, there are two other countries that are in you know, a precarious situation, Ghana and Nigeria. Ghana facing real sort of debt, you know, economic burden pressures. Nigeria facing soaring inflation. And yet neither of those two countries have been susceptible to, to coups as well. So I think it's worth, that's why that local um, domestic um, factor becomes crucial in understanding why one as opposed to, to the other as well. Well, one thing is becoming absolutely clear, which is we need to do a series of podcasts on Africa and not try and do everything all at once. But nonetheless, an issue that keeps coming up from both of you in different ways is the external factor. We haven't spoken China, we haven't spoken Russia, and as a default in any case, um, Europe, US, UN have been there for quite some time. Um, why is Africa so appealing to China and Russia lately? Sure. Well, um, it's it's not just lately that Africa has been interesting for, for China and Russia. I think China has been involved in, in Africa during decades. Uh, this dates back long before before the, the, the last two decades. But specifically, let's say after 2000, we have seen an, an increased investment by, by China in Africa. And we also know that China has been, been an actor that has provided a lot of infrastructure to, to many African states. And we have the Global Belt Road Initiative in Africa by China that has also, of course, emphasized the infrastructure aspect of China's engagement on the continent. Um, now I'm just painting the broad lines. And for Russia's part, we can see that there has been an increased engagement by Russia since there are uh, different interventions in neighboring states, in Georgia, um, and especially then since Ukraine, because as Russia has become more and more isolated on the global scene by other actors, including the Western one, and as they have now considerable sanctions against them, they have tried to reach out to, to other actors. And and the African continent has been uh, the place where they have really um, tried to increase their engagement in different ways. But I think we shouldn't overestimate Russians' uh, influence on the African continent. It's a topic that's attracting a lot of media attention. But in comparison to other external actors, Russia has a very limited role on, on the continent. What's interesting with Russia is that they have managed to play a little bit above their weight. Let's say that they have managed to use their uh, the mercenaries, the Wagner Group, whatever we can call it now, let's continue to call it the Wagner Group, these Russian mercenaries that have been sent into different states in in some sort of domestic uh, turbulence or in a, some sort of uh, armed conflict. So we have seen in Mali, but also in the Central African Republic, in Mozambique and in Sudan. Um, even though we're talking about a very small amount of troops, they have managed to get a lot of attention from uh, the media and from external actors that have in some way increased their importance above their own weight. So Russia is is known as, as the one, the actor that has the Kalashnikov diplomacy in, in Africa more broadly because it's the main uh, arms exporter to the continent. I think it's about 49% of all the arms in Africa comes from, from Russia. 
But apart from that, Russia is not a big actor in, in the African continent. They're not a strong economic actor. They're definitely not a strong development actor. Um, politically, they're gaining some inroads now during the past few years with certain uh, states, but not many states. Uh, and I think that, that Russia's influence on the continent is a bit um, overemphasized, uh, especially by, by certain medias. Thanks, Nina. I mean, there's not much else to add. There, There is a story, particularly during the Cold War, about how Moscow and Washington sort of made Africa sort of like a proxy battleground in, in the in the whole sort of geopolitical um, superpower um, era and, you know, very much instigating um, or fueling wars, um, but also trying to shape politics um, in these countries. I think economically speaking, a number of African countries received generous um, support from Western um, governments or Western-dominated international institutions in, in exchange for not um, running towards Moscow's embrace in the Cold War. And it's interesting how we've sort of seen a repeat of history play, playing out. And when, when that sort of Cold War um, era ended, you know, Africa was plunged into sort of a period of, of political turmoil, of economic un, uncertainty. And the question was, where were the role of the, the Western countries? Where were the role of the sort of IFIs, the institutional um, financial um, players in all of this? And the reason I say that is because this, if you want to understand China's rise, you also have to understand the decline or the absence or the retreat, um, both of the no Northern Hemisphere countries, um, who, in a sense, I wouldn't go as far as to say they cut off financial support, but they made it harder for um, Africa to access some of those loans and to deal with its own debt um, issues. And also the conditions that were tied to some of these loans um, required a number of, of African governments to sort of go through painful um, market reforms. And then you, you saw China's rise and you saw China coming in with, you know, un, no conditions are tied to their aid, no conditions are tied to their debt. And suddenly, um, what, one of the most interesting things that I think accompanied the last decade or, you know, of the 21st century was suddenly Africa saw that it had choices. It found that it was an interesting playing ground for great power competition. It found that it could turn to the West, but it, it could also look East to, to China. And at the, at the same time, there are a number of sort of new, newer rising powers, Turkey being an interesting one, um, India, who traditionally had roles on the continent, but they then became interested um, players. So if you remember a few years ago, Turkey said it was going to open, I think, 33 or so embassies. And with every embassy, Turkish Alliance came, <laughs> Turkish Airways came on board. And so suddenly it wasn't just um, it wasn't just your classical diplomacy. It was airplane diplomacy because it, suddenly it meant that we could fly to different places through through Turkey. And then another set of actors, dormant actors um, that has traditionally played a role, but then reasserted themselves in this multipolar era um, was not just China, but it was also a number of Gulf countries. So you had the Gulf monarchies um, and then you had Brazil as well. So this is the era of the BRICS, the era of the sort of rising um, monarchies who therefore showed that they didn't, Africa didn't no longer feel emboldened or needing to bend to Western demands for democracy, but they could look elsewhere. So you had this real interesting contest, interesting um, sort of players who now come in to assert themselves. But one of the worrying things about that, um, and this will be the final thing that I'll say, is that some of those sort of middle powers, assertive powers, they started feeding new conflicts by supplying arms um, to their favoured um, leaders to various factions in various areas, and, and therefore um, widened and broadened that geography geostrategic interest, but then also complicated um, peacemaking on the continent. So a lot of commercial interest at a time where Africa um, was maturing, Africa rising, it had lots of choices. Um, but a number of those players also um, taking decisions that either fueled conflicts, made it harder to, to end conflicts, but were also um, showing that there were new mediators who could help 
find a way in which to end end conflicts. Uh, I mean, I think right now what we're watching is whether those those actors, those Gulf monarchies, particularly Saudi Arabia, can help us find a pathway to peace in Sudan, for example. And Sudan and Saudi Arabia has led the peace talks. Um, or efforts to get to peace, efforts to get to a negotiated settlement, for example, in Sudan, in Jeddah. Um, Where that ends up, we don't know. But all of this to say is that the continent is very different today. There are a number of actors today. I think you're very right to say, Nina, that that I think Russia, um, people are overstating Russia's um, influence. It's certainly opportunistic, um, but there's no clear where um, where it's sort of whether there's coherence in its foreign policy um, tactics, but there are clearly um, there is clearly interest um, on the continent and how that helps sort of drive towards a peaceful coexistence for a number of regions is, is going to be the thing that we're going to be watching for the next um, few months, I think. I think you're probably right. And even though we're out of time, I will ask one last short question, which is, Looking at all these external actors, looking at everything you've told us so fascinatingly about Africa, how does it see its role, if at all, in unfolding global events? Oh, that's brilliant, brilliant question. Um, you know, the the Africa Union um, sit at, sits at the apex of, you know, sort of the political view of the continent. And one would assume that it would shape a lot of the thinking in terms of international affairs. But what we've seen in the last um, sort of 18 months, particularly in Ukraine, but now in relation to um, Israel, um, Gaza, is that there are individual countries um, who have sort of staked their own claim in terms of their views on a number of sort of international um, dramas. So South Africa very much um, wanting to kind of play a mediation role, but its own history, complicated history of the African National Congress vis-a-vis the Soviet Union, I think made it struggle in terms of where it sat um, alongside Russia, Ukraine, and its understanding of what was going on there. And then you had the very interesting position of the then Kenyan ambassador to the UN, um, who made it very clear on the eve of the invasion that he was very concerned about multilateralism. Um, and that this house, this chamber, this Security Council um, needed to work hard to preserve the essence of the UN principles. Um, there's been an assumption um, that somehow Africa has been in, in sort of in bed or closer to Russia. I think that's a, a fallacy. I think that is to misunderstand the varied relationships. There's certain countries um, for regime survival, for military survival, who felt the need to be in the camp of Russia, but there are others who have been supportive um, of Ukraine. And then despite the abstention um, at the UN, I think they've all charted um, a course that speaks directly to their own national interests. It's the national interests, um, it's the economic interests of these countries that dictates where they sit in Ukraine. But I would also say that it's the same thing, not surprisingly, for Israel, Palestine, where you've seen the tilt generally from a number of African countries because of their own colonial history, to be very sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, not necessarily undermining the need for or recognising the need for Israel's um, self-defence as well. But being very clear, um, at least from South Africa's perspective, it's not lost to any of us that the language of apartheid um, in South Africa resonates very strongly when you you lay it into the Israel-Palestine conundrum as well at least for this current government. Nina, do you have anything to add? I think that it's important to remember that uh, we talk about Africa as a a continent, and you mentioned it in the beginning, but of course it's 54 different states. uh, So we also need to remember this, and and we shouldn't speak about it as as one coherent country. that being said, I think that the AU is is struggling to to have a global role. It's struggling because there are internal divisions within the continent. African um, Union. Yes, African Union is struggling. But the Ukraine war has in some ways, even though there have been internal division within the continent, the AU has, has taken on a role where it's, I think it's the first time since Iraq in 2003 that the AU is actually speaking on behalf of the continent, apart from the uh, annual comments about the Israel-Palestine 
um, conflict. It's the first time that they actually have speaking on behalf of the continent. So in some ways, they are trying to uh, carve out a global role for, for the African Union in spite of the internal tensions that Comfort was alluding to, to earlier. So in some ways, you can also see that Africa is... is um, is really picking up on the agency, uh, on its agency to to play a role in these events. And I think it's important to remember that this is not uh, something new. Africa, African states have always played a role, even during the Cold War, when we talk about the African continent as a as a playground for the uh, superpowers that they have always been part of it. It's always been leaders who have playing into this. It's never been uh, passive um, continent or passive leaders or states has always been part of of the international relations as we speak and as we as we see them develop, and even so, uh, even more so now during the the global power competition that we're witnessing, because again uh, we see that the leaders from the different states are, are pulling and and pushing um, African leaders in different directions. But we shouldn't forget that. These leaders are as strategic as as uh, the the other actors, as the superpowers, if we call them superpowers, as they are. So, not to forget that uh, the African states they they are very well aware of what they want and and how they are voting, and they are also knowing that they have this possibility to go in in both directions. By the way, next year is going to be quite significant because you know you'll recall that this year India. President Modi sees himself as the sort of the head of the global south. It was under his watch that the African Union was brought into the family of the G20. Now, what the African Union and what the African member states do with this new role, I think is something that we're all going to be watching as observers as well. And whether the union can represent all 54 states is also something we're going to be keeping an eye on. That is quite a significant um, um, triumph and congratulations to for that happening. But it's going to be interesting to see if we can get a coherent approach um, to having that membership on the G20. But it's a welcome decision as well. It's not only a welcome decision, it's the reason that at the very least we're going to have the two of you back on next year to assess how well the African Union did in the G20. Thank you both so very much. That's a wrap on this episode of Wise Brussels Voices. Thank you again to our guests, Eero Comfort and Nina Villen. We'd also like to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions. Keep listening to our conversations and support us with a subscription on your podcast platform. Leave us a five-star on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And of course, add to the conversation with your comments. We're on all media as Wise Brussels. So reach out on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and even TikTok. Learn more about Wise Brussels on our website, wise-brussels.org. I'm Ilana Beitel with my friend, colleague, producer, Florence Ferrando. And we will be back very soon with another great conversation. Mm-hmm.